I arrived at Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama for a conference in mid-July. It was in the late 90s. And I remember it was blazing hot, Alabama midsummer heat. And I remember how hot it was because I had on a nice suit coat and a tie as I was headed into this conference. Yeah, you used to wear things like that when you went to conferences to hear the Bible preached. So I, I was dressed nice for the occasion. I also remember this because when I walked into the chapel, I saw a man in a sports coat. And the sports coat looked like it had been purchased at a yard sale. I later found out it had been purchased at a thrift store. And I remember that moment because I thought, as a poor Bible college student, I looked at this man and I thought, man, as as a poor Bible college student, I'm doing so much better than this poor rule pastor probably somewhere out in the the sticks of rural Alabama. And as I went to walk by the man holding my new nice NASB leather Bible, I remember glancing over at his NASB paperback Bible that at that time, I still remember it was 475 at Lifeway. And the edges around the side had been flipped up and, and, and it just kind of looked janky. And as I walked by this man, I'll never remember, I'll never forget this moment. I heard Dr. Piper. As a group of young men, some of you know who I'm talking about, gathered in front of John Piper of all people to take a picture Now, John Piper is a well-known pastor, theologian, who's written tons of books, Desiring God, Pleasures of God, Don't Waste Your Life. Some of you know who that is. And up until that point, I had just started Bible college, and I had read anything that this man had written. I had several cassette tapes of sermon series that I had worn out in my S10 truck, just driving around Birmingham, listening to this man's sermons. Now, internet at that time was still dial-up, and some of you don't even know what that is. And so we didn't have it on our phones. And if I'd ever seen this man's face, I didn't remember it. And as I stood there with my copy of The Pleasures of God that I had intended for this man to sign at some point during this conference, I missed the opportunity I never got to speak to him through the whole conference because people were always gathering around him, asking questions, having books signed and pictures taken. And the reason I never got to do that is because I never imagined this man would be so unimpressive in person. And James warns us against such foolishness. He warns us against such foolishness that can creep into our hearts where we begin to evaluate one another according to appearance. And we miss out. We miss out on what is right in front of us because we are looking at things through our own eyes, through the lens of our own heart, the way the world calls us to evaluate one another. And James says, this is a sin that you must repent of. 
He says that in verse 1 where we see, first of all, Jesus and partiality. Notice verse 1. James says, my brothers, show no partiality. Now this word partiality, it means to, it, it means to lift your face in respect for someone. And, and it, it carries the meaning of lifting your eyes to notice certain people and to disregard other people. It means to discriminate. It means to be a respecter of persons. It means to favor by appearance or status or, or money or race. And James says, show no partiality. Actually, he's saying, stop showing partiality. You're guilty of this. You all are guilty of it to some degree. My brothers in the church. And he's going to explain how they're guilty of it as a church. He says, you can show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, as you claim to be followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, the ruler of all things, the one who has saved us from our sins, the one who has defeated death and is risen. Notice he even adds this phrase, the Lord of glory, meaning the one who should have the most gravity, the most weight in the world, the one who deserves the most fame because he has defeated sin and death and he is the one that God has given the most glory to. He is the one that God lifts his face to. The Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we immediately see how James addresses partiality. And, and here in this, the opening of chapter 2, he is telling us if Jesus is the one we all lift our face for, if Jesus is the one we are seeking to make famous, there will be no partiality in the church. You want to purge the church of favoritism. Make sure Jesus is the most famous in the church, in all of the songs, in all of the sermons, in all of the ministry, in all of the fellowship, in all of the prayers. We want to lift Jesus up. At the end of every conversation, we want to say, this is about Jesus. This isn't about me. This isn't about you. We serve one another. We give ourselves over to helping one another to make sure Jesus gets the glory. And he says, you claim to be ones who say Jesus is the Lord of glory, but you're acting very different on Sunday morning. Notice verse 2, we see partiality is a false gospel. He says, for if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly. Now, you could translate this gold ring as gold fingers. This is a man who has gold on every finger. He is blinged out. He's also wearing fine clothing as he comes to church on Sunday. He's dressed as royalty probably in the, these men would have been dressed in white robes and they are flaunting their wealth they're making sure everyone sees their version of uh, of sandals the the jays that are sandals and, and and everybody sees and notices how much money they have by what they are wearing now what's interesting is this is what the new testament describes as immodesty drawing attention to yourself and you can do that in a lot of ways and it's a sin and yet these men come in flaunting their appearance 
But also, there's a poor man. And notice how he is described. In shabby clothing. Now the word poor means, it's a play on words here. To show partiality is to lift your face to someone and not others. The word for poor means to hide your face. And so while you are lifting your face for some, there is one who comes in who is trying to hide. They're trying to hide their face because of their poverty. And they are wearing shabby clothing, clothing that that the word is foul or vile. They, They have worn this clothing on the streets. It is worn out. They probably have not had a bath in weeks and they smell. And so you have the man who comes in flaunting his wealth. And then you have the poor man who comes in and he is trying to hide. And what do you do? Verse 3. If you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing. And you say, you sit here in the good place. Now here, James is probably referring to the same thing Jesus condemned the Pharisees for. He says, when you gather together in your synagogues, you gather together in the temple in your meetings, you have places called the chief seats. And it's where all the important people, all the most religious, all the most wealthy, they want to set up high where everyone can see them. And so you're doing the same thing in the church that Jesus condemned. The rich man comes in and you say, everybody look, look who's here today. This man who has influence, this man who has wealth, everybody look, let's set him up here where everyone can see. And then you notice the poor man. And you say to him, you stand over there or you sit at my feet. Even the tone and description here, it it changes where you are commanding this poor man. And you're saying, you get over here so nobody sees you. We, We don't want anyone to know that you're a part of what's going on here. And you stand over there with the slaves, with the outcast. As a matter of fact, you sit at our feet. So everybody knows what we really think about you. Outcast, slave, poor. Notice what he says. Have you not then made distinctions? Have you not shown partiality among yourselves? You are lifting your face to some and not others and have become judges with evil thoughts. What he says to them is you have put yourself in the place of God and you are determining who should have favor and who should be cast out. You you are determining who should be given grace, who should be honored and who should be given no grace and dishonored. You have put yourself on the throne and notice with evil thoughts. You are using the thoughts of men, the thoughts of the world, wicked thoughts that are contrary to the way God thinks to judge one another. You're trying to humiliate the poor and exalt the rich, and you do it ultimately for personal gain. What is in it for us? More money? A larger offering? More influence in the community? This church obviously needed that. They were being persecuted for their faith. Now we have someone with influence who can speak for us in the courts. Let's honor him. 
But what does this poor guy, what, what can he do for us? This doesn't help us. It says we, we have no gain or advantage with him. And in verse 5, he says, listen, my brothers, you are acting according to evil thoughts. But listen how God thinks and acts. Has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? You want to know who God favors? It's the poor man. It's the man who knows he has nothing and he is not trying to to gain your attention. He's not flaunting who he is and what he has. He realizes he has nothing and he's trying to hide. This is the one God favors. The one who is poor, notice, in the world, by the world's status. He, he, he selects him. He sets his love on him. That he would be rich in the faith. That he would be blessed in the faith with everything he needs. That he would be heirs of the kingdom. That he would be ruler with Christ, which he has promised to those who love him. What James is describing here is is the way God chooses to work in the world to say something about the state of our own soul. God so often chooses those who have nothing and gives them everything to declare that when you have Jesus, you have all you need. And he does this so often throughout the history of Christianity. The majority of the church has lived in poverty. American Christianity is an anomaly. Where it seems as though the Christians have the money and power. It's an anomaly. Throughout history, God sets his his love upon those who have nothing to offer the world. Who already know they have nothing to offer him. Why? He is showing us something about ourselves. Because we know to get into the kingdom, we must, as Jesus taught us, be poor in spirit. And what does that mean? You must understand you are spiritually bankrupt. Which means you have sinned against God, which is an infinite debt that you have accrued for yourself that you can't pay it off. And so often God goes to those who are in this plight of poverty and he wants to show us, this is how I work. You can, you can have Jesus and, and, and nothing else and you have everything you need. You can be poor here, but you are rich in heaven. You can look out at the world and you say, there's the rich guy, there's the poor guy. Well, God says this, the poor guys who are in Jesus are heirs. They are rulers. They are kings and queens who will rule forever. And and I want you to know what I'm doing. Because you so often don't see it. You don't go to heaven because you are poor. But this is the way God so often works for his glory. And in chapter 1, he talks about enduring to the end. That that we would believe in God's goodness all the way to the end. And, And here he describes those who he has promised this very thing to. Who love him to the end. And why do they love him to the end? Because they realize he is all they need. They have nothing but Jesus. So James wants us to know how God works when it comes to poverty. And then the rebuke, verse 6. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you 
You, you are hypocrites and you are fools. You're not acting like God. You don't see what God so often does in the world. And you are honoring the rich who oppress you, who exploit you. And he continues, the ones who drag you into courts, are not they the ones who blaspheme the honorable name which you were called? He, he says, do you understand what you're doing? You, you as a church are being persecuted for your faith. And the, the religious, those who have power, the rulers of the day, they can't stand your message. You are preaching a message of a crucified Messiah, a king who lost. And they hate that. And, and yet it is the people of the world who have nothing, who are helpless, who are weak, who are being drawn to that message. And it makes the rulers of this world sick. It makes the religious of this world want to destroy you. And so they are calling you into courts and they are taking everything away from you. And yet you are so blind and foolish to that. When they come to church, you want to honor the very same people. Do you not see the hypocrisy? Do you not see the foolishness? Verse 7, he says, they are the ones who blaspheme, which means to Drill holes into the honorable, excellent name by which you were called. You have taken on the name of Jesus, and yet it is the rich, it is the, the influential, it is, it is those who have power, and they are boring holes into the name of Jesus. They're in the courts at this time. The Romans court, courts were often rigged for the rich. And so, so often the rich won in courts because they had money. And yet the poor became more poor. And here the Christians are losing. And, and James can't believe it. He says, the rich oppress you and hate Jesus. Why are you honoring them? Well, we know why. Because we do the same thing. The church has always been tempted to think the influential in the world give us credibility. No matter the circumstance. This is why we honor the rich, famous politician as Christians. Because we think he's going to give us some power and credibility. This is why so often we want the celebrity and the athlete to be a Christian. Because it gives us credibility. We don't care about their soul so often. We just want... The world to know Christianity has some credibility. There is a comedian that I like a lot. And he's clean, by the way. And I've, I've been listening to this guy for a couple of years. And every now and then, he'll say something positive about Christianity. And I'm like, yes, that dude's a Christian. And I have no clue. He just said Christian and saved. And I'm like, wow, he must be a Christian. I have no idea what he believes. Why do I get excited that he's repented and believed in Jesus and is going to heaven? No, it validates my faith. Yeah, he's on my side. He's on my team. It gives us credibility. Well, James is saying Jesus doesn't need or want the world's credibility. Doesn't need or want it. And instead of honoring those who give you credibility, why are you not like God and honoring those who can give you nothing? 
That, that is the way the church is to function. Instead of looking out at the world and saying, how can we get credibility out here? How can y'all validate us? How can y'all move our, our agendas forward for power? No, we, we turn around and we don't lift our heads to the powerful, influential. We lift our heads to those who can do nothing for us. We lift our face for the unborn who can't even be seen. We lift our face for the orphan, for the widow, for the trafficked, for the immigrant. That is how the church is to function. Why? Because that is how, what is God has done for us. Those who could offer him nothing. He has lifted his face for us in grace. He has shown us favor that we did not deserve because we have nothing to give him. And so at church, we show the same attention to the one who may never give a dime to this place because they can't, they can't afford it. We show the same attention to them as we would to the person who, if they gave 10%, it would be more than half our budget. We show the same attention. We have to work at that. We have to fight to do that in the context of the church. And we don't look past the single mom who's still a teenager for the young businessman who gives us more clout. No, we lift our face and we are looking for those who are trying to hide their face because that is what we must do before God as beggars for mercy. And James continues this thought. He says, verse eight, partiality is selective obedience. You are guilty of selective obedience. Notice, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. Now, James goes back to this idea of royal law, and he's referring to the, the greatest commandment. When Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? And he says, it is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all you are, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus still holds to that. If you want to sum up what it means to obey as a Christian, we like to say it's about relationships. It's not do's and don'ts. Well, it still is a do when you know Jesus, and it is love. You still must love, and James is going to tell us why. He says if you love, you do well. This speaks to the wholeness, the completeness, the wisdom that he is unpacking for us. It is wisdom to love. You do well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. Now, we, we would say, James, that's a little severe. You are condemning this whole church for transgressing against the law committing sin, violate, breaking the whole law just by showing partiality. That, that, that's over the top. That's preacher talk. You're exaggerating. Jesus says, no, no, I'm going to explain it to you. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point is guilty of it all. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. And if you do not commit adultery but murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. What, what James is saying here is if, if love sums up the whole law, partiality breaks the whole law. If love sums up the whole law, partiality breaks the whole law. 
And the word for transgressor gives us an idea of what he's talking about. The word means to deviate off course. And so if you are on course to to love one another, you are on course to love your neighbor as yourself, and, and you are walking down the road of fulfilling that law, as soon as you are partial or show favor, you're over here. You're on a different road because that's not the way God thinks. And that's not what God has called you to. James says, the law of love is like a pane of glass. And it is beautiful and it is excellent. And yet when you show partiality, you ding the glass. You, you crack the glass and you may say, well, it's just cracked in that one spot. When, when your kids say that, when they've hit the, the window, oh, you ruined the window. No, 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 just that one spot of the window. No, the whole thing needs to be replaced. That's how serious James is about partiality. You've ruined the whole thing. And you may say, well, it's just with the poor folks. We're just being partial when it comes to poor folks. We love all kinds of other people. We love the rich. We love other folks in our community. We love one another. You should see our fellowship. And and James says, okay, when you stand before God, and let's say that you've killed someone. You say, God, I murdered Okay, well, you're guilty of breaking the whole law. But, but, but I never committed adultery. He says, that's not how the law of love works. You are given over to sacrifice. And as Jesus told us in the parable of the Good Samaritan, you sacrifice for whatever needs in front of you at the moment. Whoever is in front of you. And most often, it's going to be your enemy that God is calling you to love. Moms this week, what if you're kid who you said, I want you to go to your room and I want you to pick up your room. And 30 minutes later, they came back. You said, did you, did you pick up your room? Did you get everything cleaned out? No, actually I took out more clothes. I took out more toys. Well, you are guilty, but I haven't lied today. That's not the way that works. You're going to get down in their face and say, you're even more wicked than I thought. And that's exactly what James is saying about the church. When you say it's just the poor we're being partial to, you are more wicked than you ever thought. The reality is you can't choose who to love no more than you can pick what commandment to obey. Some of us would like to say today, I get really irritated with the poor folks in Richmond. And you're going to sign up to go to New Orleans and minister to the same kind of people. He says, you can't do it that way. You can't ease your conscience that way. You can't ease your conscience with those who it's easy to love because you don't want to love certain people. You can't go home today and say, I just can't speak to the neighbor with the rainbow sticker. But at least I invited the guy over whose truck has a lift kit on it for the cookout. You can't do that. 
Because here's the deal. Whether you like it or not, the one who is hardest to love is the one God's calling you to love. That is what God has done for us, his enemies. He has loved us. You see, the reality is, I personally have a really hard time loving self-righteous people. When when you've been in ministry for 20 years and you get the anonymous connect cards, I can't believe you said that. Why'd we sing that song? I saw this person dressed this way. Why'd we get rid of the donuts? Oh, that's never, never mind. I just slipped out. I know that's a big controversy here. But it's really, that, it's really hard for me to deal with self-righteous people who come to church and they sort of nitpick things that go on and, and then eventually leave the church. And I'm like, well, you didn't even care about making things right. You left anyway. Now, I would rather hang out with the guy who has the arm sleeve tattoo. And we're going to sit around and talk about NASCAR. And I like to tell myself this. I'm way more like Jesus than the self-righteous folks. Because you know what Jesus did? He condemned self-righteousness. And he hung out with the sinners. And as soon as that thought runs through my mind, I condemn myself and I'm more wicked than I ever thought. It proves my self-righteousness and I am unlike Jesus who loved me, a little self-righteous Southern Baptist twit who thought he had everything together. And it proves my self-righteousness. And the same thing goes on in your life. Because selective love so often is love for an image of yourself. And it is what you like and what you appreciate in yourself that you want to love in others. And it is idolatry. And it is wickedness. And James says, that is what you're guilty of, church. You want power. You want wealth. You want prestige in the, in the culture. So that's why you're loving the rich. And that's why you're loving the influential. So what's the cure for partiality? Verse 12, so speak and act as those who will be judged under the law of liberty. Speak and act. It is Christ-like wisdom that he's been talking about. It's hearing. It's doing. It's when you suffer. How can I be like Jesus? It is your faith that is growing in the goodness of God. So you endure and you trust him and you serve others all the way to the end. Continue to speak and act in Christ-like wisdom. It would be to love as those who will be judged, proven, evaluated under the law of liberty. Now, James is really big on talking about the law. So we want to talk about the gospel. And, And so how does this fit together? Why does he keep referring to law? Well, even as a Christian, you are demanded and commanded to love. You can't get away from it. If you are a Christian, the first thing you do is figure out, how am I going to love others? Before you even think about, what, what's a quiet time? How do, you know, you just say, how am I going to love others? And so it's demanded of you, but why does he keep talking about liberty? Because as a Christian, someone who's been saved by God, trusting in the cross of Christ, his righteousness, that's the only thing that can save you. You are free to love. 
That's why it's liberty. You're demanded, you have to love. But you're also free to love. How are you free to love? Because God has loved you, sending his son to die for your sins, his enemy. He has fulfilled the law of love for you in dying for you. The law that you must love has been fulfilled by Jesus who loved you, his enemy, in your place. He fulfilled the law in your place. So you may say, I'm not going to heaven by my love. But if you don't love, you're not going to heaven. Because you of all people have been freed to love. And you of all people claim to really know what love is. Unconditional, sacrificial love. And so you who claim the name of Christ, it is demanded of you to live as Christ, to love your enemies. And James says here, you will be evaluated by your love. It will be proven if you really believe in the love of God by the way you love. It will be fleshed out in your commitment to the good of others no matter what it costs you. Do you really believe God loved you? We will see when you love others. And it's a process. We've talked about that throughout, James. Growing and becoming like Christ. But he goes even further, verse 13, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Again, he goes back to this idea, you will be judged by your love. And he uses the term mercy, which is tenderhearted kindness. And mercy is kindness to someone despite what they deserve. And so you deserve hell for your sin. But God was merciful to you. He sent Christ to die for your sin. That's what mercy is. God hasn't given you what you deserve. He's given you Christ. He's given you mercy. And so you know mercy. And so he says, for judgment will be without mercy to the one who shows no mercy. God's evaluation of you will have no mercy if you can't show mercy. Why? You prove you really don't know what mercy is if you can't be merciful. That's why Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. We're not earning God's mercy by showing mercy. We are simply proving that we know mercy when we are merciful. We are simply showing that we know what love is when we love others. And so the next time you say, I just can't. I just can't. Be thankful that's not what God said about you. The next time you say that type of person, those kind of people, even the next time you are forced to have to deal with someone who has sinned against you, you have an opportunity to prove that you really know love, the love of God. You have an opportunity to prove that you really know mercy and you have to search your heart. And the thing that you do in that moment is you delight in the gospel. This week, that person that is hard for you to love, going back to last week's sermon, start memorizing scripture on the love of God for you. And they'll get easier to love if you've truly believed in the love of God. Mercy, you don't want to be merciful to them. Reflect on the fact that God was merciful to you and you deserve hell. You deserve to be under the blowtorch of his wrath and judgment in this very moment. And yet you are breathing life and you know Jesus. 
Mercy, notice this beautiful phrase. Mercy triumphs over judgment. James says the greatest hypocrisy is partiality. That's no gospel. And the greatest display of mercy, the greatest display of the gospel is mercy. This is why going back to the idea of partiality, church can't be an Instagram photo shoot every week. It can't be a red carpet event for those who have it all together. Because in that, there's no mercy for those who don't. There's no hope for those who know I don't have it all together. The brother who needs to confess of an addiction to pornography. How does he do that in a church that thinks they have it all together? The woman who needs to confess and walk in the forgiveness of an abortion with her church family. How does she do that if we walk in here and we are guilty of favoritism and we treat those who have it all together as this is what Christianity is like? The brother who was fired from his job because he lied on an expense report and he still hasn't told his wife and he hasn't told anybody around him and he knows he needs to confess that sin. If we walk in here and it's a show, And it's about power and it's about influence. How does he come forward and repent and confess his sin? Or the mom in BFG who just can't ask for prayer because her child is struggling with same-sex attraction. How does she do that in a church that walks around like they think they have it all together and they put on a pedestal those who look like they have it all together? So how do we get to that point? Well, you'll only be willing to show mercy when you see your face in the spiritually bankrupt. You will only lift your face to those who are trying to hide their face if you see in their eyes one who once was trying to hide their face from God. A poor beggar for mercy. I am the one who is spiritually bankrupt. My sin may look different, but it earned me infinite wrath and eternal judgment. And I had no other choice but to hide my face before God and plead the mercy of the cross. And the good news today, we are guilty of being respecters of persons. But God is no respecter of persons. And the proof is, when he should have turned his face away from me, when he had no business lifting his face toward me, he lifted his eyes toward me as he turned his face from his son, who was gurgling blood, whose face was swollen on, uh, after being whipped to pieces, He turned his face from the son who was enduring his wrath as it was unleashed for my sin on the son. God is no respecter of persons. May he save us from doing the same. May we run to those who need him the most and would in our face as we lift our face to them, would they see and know Jesus isn't hiding his face.